0: From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Winden?
1: I can't believe I'm ninety two and but i am and uh, my father said to me-but he says that when you are building your life the most important things are the four L's and the first L is listening and it's a rare thing these days listening listening to the human voice listening to one person talking to another person listening We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. (laughs) And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving. said, God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. I love you. Thank
2: you. Welcome to True Tales Live on Stage. I'm Amy Antonucci, the True Tales announcer, here to introduce our show to you today. We just heard Katherine Tucker Windham speaking at the age of 92 at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival about the importance of stories. We start all of our shows with that clip because we just wholeheartedly believe in the sentiment that she is putting forward with those four L's. So the stories that you're going to hear today will be true first-person experience stories. That means that the person telling the story will have experienced it themselves. Each of our tellers has a 10-minute limit for their telling as well. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance and support to the storytellers, this is not a competition. We have no scoring or ranking or judging at all. We believe that everyone is a storyteller and that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together. Through storytelling, people from very different backgrounds, places, experiences can connect, find common ground. And we think this is critical to creating healthy, vibrant communities. So that's why we do what we do. Our monthly shows usually have a theme to help get people's minds turning around what stories they have to tell. Today, our theme is Challenges and Discoveries. We have six storytellers, John Lovering, Annette Slattery, John Rochelot, April Purinton, Judith Rubenstein, and Sharon Jones. Each of our tellers will be introduced to you by our excellent MC, local storyteller and artist, Pat Spaulding, and let's welcome
3: her to the mic right now. Come on up, Pat. (laughs) Thanks, Amy. Hey, it's pretty great to have all these people here on a nice rainy, kind of fallish day. Fall is the time for stories, you know. Summer, we're out doing other things, and when the weather is great. But in the fall, we're getting prepared for winter, and we come in and maybe get warmed by a fire around each other. We listen and we talk to each other, and that's what we're going to be doing t- tonight. Um, I'm really excited about uh, being able to introduce. Six different storytellers today, all of whom have told their stories at various uh, True Tales Live shows that we've had over the years. We're going to start out with our producer, um, John Lovering. Now, he first told this story. Usually, there's a theme and and, uh, people prepare, but he filled in because somebody canceled at the last minute, and I think it was a couple of years ago, and so... You know, we're kind of calling around, okay, well, who's got a story, who's got a story? And John says, well, I think I've got one. So with probably, I don't know, 20 minutes of preparation, (laughs) maybe a little longer. Five minutes. Five minutes, wow. Okay, so he came up with this story. He's practiced it a little bit since then. Um, John is a lifelong resident of New Hampshire, now living in Dover, with his wife of 48 years, Melanie. He's a retired high school biology teacher and media production teacher with 35 years in the profession. John's hobbies include video and audio, audio editing and the restoration of old tube radios, community um, oh, from the 1930s through the late 50s. For 13 years, he volunteered at Portsmouth Community Radio as the creator and host of audio theater, as well as being the audio engineer for the program Don't dis. My ability. In January of 2014, he produced the original radio version of this program, uh, True Tales Live. Currently, both Don't Dis My Ability and True Tales Live are produced and seen on PPM-TV. And uh, you can come see us there. John also hosts a new version of audio theater called Heirloom Radio, which is heard as a podcast at soundcloud.com. His story tonight will turn back the clock to 1957. How many out there remember 1957? (laughs) Oh yeah, I was around for it. Its title is The Lip. Come on up, John.
0: Yes, and I I hope you don't get sick of me because this quickly, anyway, too quickly. Okay. I'm going to start out with this. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You did a good job. I uh, I appreciate that. (laughs) I will spend my whole life through Loving you, loving you Winter, springtime, summer too Loving you, loving you Makes no difference where I go Or where I will be I will always be Loving you That was the music I heard coming out of my sister's room in 1957, with my apologies to Elvis Presley. Um, She was 16. I was a little brat brother. I was 10. And my sister had purchased her first record album. It was an Elvis Presley album entitled Loving You, based on the movie, the Hal Wallace movie, by the same name. And I was specifically told by my sister, keep your grubby hands, off my record album. Okay, dear, I would. (laughs) And she uh, was going out on a date that night with a bunch of friends They were going to go to a movie. My room was right next to her. This was in Keene, New Hampshire, in our home in Keene. And as soon as she left, (laughs) I went into her room and I looked at the album. There it was. It was on her bureau, right next to her mirror. And so that she could look at her throb, as she combed her hair, put her jewelry on. And, you know, and I I liked his music. I had seen him on the Ed Sullivan show and I had seen him on, I hate to say this, the the, uh, Tommy Dorsey show. um, And uh, on television. And I liked Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel and all that stuff. But this was kind of a slow song and the movie was featured and and he was the star of the movie. And she had that picture. So I went in the room and I thought, I could check check this out. I looked at the picture, and I said, uh, yeah, he looks okay. (laughs) Uh, Wait a minute. After a close inspection, I noticed there was an imperfection on his lower right lip. (laughs) Somehow, a person at the melody shop where she bought the album had put a sticker right there that said $5.99, melody shop, which was a lot of money at, at that time. I couldn't stand it. It was a pale color sticker, and it just ruined the whole Elvis effect. I, I backed up far away. I still could see the sticker. I said, I, I got I to gotta do something about this. I got to do, I, I can't. My sister would appreciate, she didn't have time. She got the album. She came home. She's gone out. I will fix this. So I took the, the album, put it on her bed, and I got down on my knees beside the bed, and I started to work my nail on that. On that uh, um, sticker, I, I started to get it, pull it up, and it was really hard. And I said, mm, "Let's see, I got to do this right." And I remember seeing a guy on television who put some uh, silverware and dishes on a tablecloth, and then he pulled the tablecloth out from under it, and all that stuff stayed right there. I said, "Maybe that, maybe that'll work on the sticker if I just go really fast <laughs> and take it off." So. I grabbed onto it. Here we go. You know the movie Gone with the Wind? Well, this is Gone with the Label. The lip was gone with the label. Uh, It was on the underside of the label, stuck to it. And what was now appearing on Elvis was a big streak of white halfway across his lip. It looked like he had a horrible overbite. And I'm going, oh, my Lord, am I in trouble. And I didn't know what to do. I got panicky. I walked around the room. If she comes back and sees this, the picture was apparently printed on the sleeve, and it was cardboard under it. It was white. Now that was showing. Elvis's lip was destroyed. So I said, what what can I do? What can I do? Then it hit me. Crayolas. (laughs) I had some Crayolas in my room. I went in my room. I remembered, you know, now, those days, they only had maybe like 12, 18 colors. Uh, Now they got 500. The boxes are huge, but they only had 12. But I remembered there was flesh color. And if I ever needed flesh, it was now. (laughs) All right, back to the room, back to the bedroom. I very carefully put that down on the on the bedspread, got down on my knees, and I colored. I colored it in up and down, several several layers. I pushed it, I smudged it so that it would look shiny like the rest of the picture. I even did an outline around the lip. It looked pretty darn good. And I was using all my artistic talent as a 10-year-old child <laughs> that I had and my best coloring technique. I, I got it done, and I picked it up, and I looked at it, and I went, hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, well, that looks better than with a label, and I put it up on a bureau, and I got back five feet, looked a little better, 10 feet, 12 all the way across the room. It looked really good from there, and I thought, well, she'll she'll be appreciative that I took that off. So I left it, put my crayons away. I, I went to bed later on, and uh, it was in the evening. I don't know what time it was. It must have been 10 o'clock, and I heard this scream, I'll kill him, I'll kill him, Mommy, Daddy, do you look what look what he did to my album? And then there was all this talk going on out in the hallway outside my room. And I said, I wonder who they're talking about. And I, I knew I knew it was me. I was in trouble. The door opened up to my room. My father turned on the light. My father was standing there with the album. <laughs> and he said, What the hell did you do? <laughs> And I tried to explain, and I was, and all the time my sister's <laughs> standing beside him, daddy's little girl, you know. I'm going, oh come on, and and so he he punished me. I can't remember what it was because I was so mad at her. I don't remember it now, but it was, you know, it took some privilege away or whatever. Anyway, um, then he went out and he closed the door. He did tell me this. He said you had no business touching her stuff. You weren't supposed to do that. not to all that. Okay, so I was just trying to help. When he shut the door, I said, my sister's really mad at me. I've got to come up with some kind of positive strategy to get us back together so that we'll be friends again. But there was one thing standing in my way between the positive strategy and and implementing it and thinking of it. It was revenge. (laughs) You see, she got me in trouble. I wasn't ready to accept the consequences. I was too little. But she had got me in trouble from all her crying and yelling, so I had to get back at her. So what I did is I had a a desk or a table with some paper on it, and I took a piece of paper and I used black Crayola and I wrote her name, big letters, Carol, C-A-R-O-L. And I stuck two pieces of tape on a piece of string on each side of it, and it was a sign. I gotta hang that sign somewhere. I had a Pinocchio doll underneath my bed. Now, those of you, you know, when I was just a child of eight, I had a Pinocchio doll. Pinocchio Pinocchio—it was a doll that was about four feet high and it had elastic bands on its feet, and you could stick his feet onto your feet, and so when you danced, his feet would move. And he was dressed with He was what I call a fib Pinocchio. His nose wasn't that long, it was like four inches. He didn't do a lot of lies, they made it up, so he was a, fizz, a fib Pinocchio. But the nose was perfect for hanging that little sign on with Carol. So I used the back of his collar, I opened the door, I hung him on my doorknob outside in the hallway, hung the sign on him, and he yeah, had like this with the sign on, with it, Carol, and I said, that'll get her. <laughs> and I shut the door. A few minutes later, she's getting ready to go to bed now. She's go down the hallway right by my room, and she said, you think you're funny, don't you, you little brat? That's what I got out of that. So I said... Sort of, We got to go to another level. (laughs) Um, Maybe scaring the bejesus out of her would work. So I went over to my desk and I, kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I had a collection of ketchup packages. (laughs) (laughs) Most kids my age collected minerals, shells, stamps. I had a couple of those, but I also had a, a little bowl full of ketchup packages because whenever my parents had gone out to a restaurant or something and we had a couple left over, I'd take them, I'd go out and put them in my bowl, and then we had something that had ketchup. Everybody else is banging the bottle. I'm just...
4: <laughs>
0: I had my ketchup packages. So I took two of them, opened up my wooden toy box, and there's my official Davy Crockett coonskin cap that Fess Parker used to play Davy Crockett on television and he told me I should have one and I got one for Christmas and I lifted it up and there's my Davy Crockett knife. Now my knife was rubber, totally rubber. It was red and silver and it was real floppy, soft rubber. Uh, probably, you know, he used to carve his name in the trees. Uh, this would probably be a rubber tree, I don't know, but anyway, <laughs> it, was, it was a rubber knife. I then went into my sister's closet And I got in the closet, and I shut her door, so now I'm standing right in front, took my pajama top off, broke open two packages of ketchup, and rubbed it all over my stomach and put the knife right here. And I'm standing in front of, the back of the door, rather. She's still in the bathroom, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. Pretty soon, I heard her come in the room, because she's humming loving you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and she's walking around the room i didn't know but she had a just a towel on now she was going to open the door to get her nightgown (laughs) i had planned to just fall forward because her bed wasn't that far away and i knew i could hit that and roll on the floor and i'd be all right so it could look really really cool So i stood there all of a sudden the door opened, and i just fell forward And she screamed at the top of her lungs. And I screamed because she was naked. (laughs) I was more frightened of what I saw than what she saw. (laughs) And I went I went down on the floor. I hit the bed, I hit the bed, a white bedspread. And I was on the floor, and my parents came running in because she was screaming, she was crying, and it was just and my father and mother came in. My mother came over to the bed, she looked at the bedspread. And then she looked at me on the floor, and I was laughing now. And she said, what is wrong with you? I never figured it out. The lip. Thank you.
3: We're still trying to figure it out, too, John. (laughs) We just know there's something wrong. Next we have Annette Slattery. Now this is the second story that Annette told with True Tales Live. Um, she's told three in all at various programs. And Annette grew up in Germany. She came to the U.S. in 1998, married a Midwesterner. Westerner. <laughs> Moved eight times since she arrived at this country and finally landed right here in Portsmouth where she now lives. Annette says that she has no future plans to move anywhere else, and that is very exciting for her. She has always been a dedicated storyteller, telling tales to whomever is willing to listen, but this is the first time that she will step onto a formal stage to tell a tale in a real theater setting. Her story is titled Meeting People, so let's meet Annette right now.
5: Hello. So, life in the new city was great. It was 1990, I was 20 years old and um, I had just moved to Gießen, a mid-sized city in Germany where I was about to start university. I had grown up in a small rural town in Germany and so this was very exciting. I was not particularly interested in the liberal arts program. I was studying um, Germany, uh, German and um, history, but um, my parents were both teachers and I thought this was really promising choice they could support. And I had done well in those classes in high school and I had to start somewhere. But school was Not my passion, but it was um, great to be finally in a bigger city. There were so many activities to choose from. I went to discussion groups, I went to pub meets, stage shows, and I was meeting a lot of new friends. It was marvelous. However, in the romance department, I was a late bloomer. I had tried to bloom a few years earlier when I had a huge crush on one of my brother's friends. I thought he was so cool. But when he finally noticed my clumsy attempts and showed interest, I didn't know what to do with him. And that was that. (laughs) In Gießen, I quite liked one of my fellow students. We were always hanging out and laughing, having a great time. But it never went anywhere. Years later, I heard that he was now happily coupled with another guy. And I thought, oh with a somewhat light bulb shaped exclamation point. <laughs> with my girlfriends, I went out dancing on the weekends. I did not quite grasp the concept of going to clubs to meet guys, but I liked to hang out with my friends, dance, and maybe run into people who didn't really go much to lectures during the day. But they did go out at night for some reason. On that particular night... I was wearing a home-sewn outfit of kind of velvet, bike shorts-like pants and uh, a blue polka-dot blouse. <coughs> I can't really blame the 90s for this get-up. It was <laughs> probably a little odd even back then. But the important thing is that I had not bothered to sew any pockets into the pants or the blouse. So when I was riding home on my bike around one o'clock at night I was holding my money in one hand, my keys in the other, while also holding on to the handlebar of my bike. With this setup I was not able to use the handbrakes.
4: Um,
5: but I grew up right next to the Netherlands and I had been riding my bike everywhere forever. So I was really confident in my abilities to stop at any time while also holding on to my
4: valuables.
5: (laughs) Interestingly, I don't remember what I was doing with my money and my keys while out at the club. Uh, Had I been carrying them around all night awkwardly? Maybe I put them in one of my friend's purses? Why didn't I have a purse? My 20-year-old self is a mystery to me. (laughs) The second strike against me that night was that my light had stopped working. So now I was sailing through the night without light or braking abilities, (laughs) going fast to get home. The last stretch I had to get up a hill. So I didn't slow down when I saw that the street was partially barricaded off a convertible was parked on the right-hand side a few yards before the barricade. So all I had to do was overtake the convertible on the right-hand side and then go on the the left-hand side and go on the right-hand side by the barricade and go up the hill. Just as I was about to overtake the car, it suddenly started to turn around. It accelerated so quickly that I heard the wheels screeching. I crashed into the driver's door. Within a split second, it blocked my way and I crashed into the driver's door. I flew off the bike, across the door, and landed in the laps of two stunned young dudes. (laughs) Yeah, that really happened. (laughs) After a moment of shock... I locked eyes with the one in the passenger seat. He said something like, Girls falling from the sky, what a night! (laughs) (laughs) What could have been the best How We Met story ever was foiled by my immediate fear of getting blamed for this accident and having to pay for some rich guy's car door. So I don't even remember what those two looked like, if they were interesting or not, just that I had to get out of there. I hopped up and out, not without putting the blame squarely on their shoulders. <laughs> Didn't you see me? you got to watch out. Amazingly, I was not hurt, and my bike was fine as well. So I was gone before they could say anything else to me. When I told my friends um, about this this um, accident um, at the next party. They thought it would be a great idea to use this method to meet the Dutch Crown Prince who would be visiting Germany the next week. Um, We discussed how these royal carriages are always way high up and for excellent reasons, which we now understood clearly. So we would probably need a high-wheel bicycle for that to work. Now my friends were really getting into this. Where would we get such a bike? Flea market, guy with a welding unit, maybe steal from a museum? (laughs) To my credit, even though I didn't want to spoil their fun, I immediately dismissed this idea in my head. I, I had no interest in the somewhat boring looking crown prince who I knew nothing about, And also I knew that doing this on purpose would be assault. (laughs) It it also dawned on me that I had actually committed a hit-and-run that night. (laughs) A few months later, I dropped out of school just because I couldn't get into the nitty-gritty of those topics and I had to cut my losses. I was worried that my parents would be quite disappointed by that. So... Um, especially my dad, who never had any of such opportunities for school. But he is a huge Francophile, so my plan was to redeem myself somewhat by working and saving up some money to go to France. I had heard about a five-month language program that a friend of mine had been at, and so she recommended it, and that was my plan. Too bad for my dad. (laughs) which is an expression that should be trademarked. (laughs) 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 Um, It was at this language program that I met my future husband. Not only is he not not a native French speaker, but an American. It was a little bit bad for me, too, because um, by hanging out mainly with the foreign students who spoke English, I didn't learn as much French as I could have. But on the bright side, my English really improved. (laughs) True to my usual modus operandi and comfort zone, my husband and I didn't become a couple during those months. We reconnected years later when I came to the US on holidays. He happened to live in Los Angeles, where my guided group tour ended. And all of a sudden, things in the romance department became easy. We decided we wanted to be together, And with a big, pragmatic shove from the U.S. Immigration Service, we got married a year later. (laughs) Nowadays, it happens quite often that people ask us how we met, probably because it's obvious when I start talking that we grew up on different continents. And while our story is solid and not too boring, I always wish a tiny little bit I could start with it was a dark night, and I was riding home on my bike, fast like the wind, <laughs> when suddenly.
3: <laughs> I love that story. Romantic adventure and um, risk. Great combos. Next coming up, we have John Rochelo. Now, he's fairly new to True Tales Live. He just came to tell a couple stories um, this year. Yeah, still this year. And um, the story he'll tell us now, um, he first told in April when the theme was getting stuck. Uh, He has spent uh, his career in the HVAC industry, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. For those of you who wouldn't recognize those initials like me where he has channeled his creative energies into problem solving with products and systems in the trade. John also raises organic vegetables and wildflowers. He writes, plays music, and this past year, he took a stab at storytelling, with us happily. While he worked on, play, on his story, he found similarities between the creative problem solving used in product development and that used in crafting a story. And Here's his quote. Successful storytelling must solve important some important need of the teller and the listener. If both are satisfied at the story's end, then a win-win solution has been created, delivered, and consumed. John hopes that you will enjoy listening to and consuming his story. A minute to spare. Come on up, John.
6: Hello, I'm not a consummate storyteller, my passion is more writing, so I'm going to give you a little of both. In 1972, the summer after fifth grade, I first stuck out my thumb and hitched a ride. I was only 10. Five years later, I hitchhiked to Columbus, Ohio with my friend whose dad lived in Miami, Florida, and that's where we were headed. That is, until we were sent back to New Hampshire by Child Protective Services. (laughs) I know, what were we thinking? The Boeing 727 plane ride home was my first, and it sure beat hitchhiking. In 1979, incidentally 10 years before I got my pilot license, I decided to hitchhike to Berlin, New Hampshire from Concord on the first full weekend of summer. I left on Friday and was confident that I could spend the weekend there visiting my two older brothers and still get back to Concord by Sunday night in advance of my first day at my first full-time job. <clears throat> I wasn't intimidated by the 118 miles ahead of me, I was 17. And by then, I had ventured thousands of miles already, thumb boldly in the lead. <laughs> in three or four hours, I arrived at my oldest brother Mike's apartment. And he gave me great news that his landlord's son, who lived in Concord, uh, and wouldn't, he was coming up that weekend. And wouldn't you know it, uh, his parents lived downstairs from my brother Mike. Coincidentally, he lived in the same apartment building as me on South Street, the one that I just moved into earlier that day. And we even said hello on the driveway. But what I remember most about him was his 1968. Camaro Z28. And I couldn't believe my luck. I'd be riding home in an awesome hot rod. The weather was beautiful all weekend, and I had a great time with my brothers fishing and enjoying the, the north country. I once lived there too with my family in 1970, and I felt sort of like Huck Finn then and loved the outdoors, the smallmouth bass and a pond, wild cranberries in the bog, Moose tracks in the mud in the peaceful ways of Mother Nature. Sunday unfolded very quickly. I was having so much fun, but also because I was a little anxious about my big day on Monday at my new job and the beginning of my newfound independence. I'd be making a weekly paycheck and living on my own, the start of my own version of the American dream. Then at 6 p.m., Mike broke the bad news. Mr. Z28 neighbor never made it up to Berlin that weekend. I begged Mike for a ride to Concord, but he was recently unemployed and had no extra money for gas. The best he could do was give me a ride to Gorham, 8 miles south, so I could begin hitchhiking from there on Route 16. I figured that most cars heading down 16 would probably be going at least to North Conway, possibly further. I was right, in a matter of minutes, a driver brought me all the way to the Kankamagus Highway and before dark, I had 100 miles to go. But that's when the situation became unnerving. The sky grew dark, not because the sun went down, but because ominous black cumulus clouds were approaching from the west, and faint thunderclaps forewarned that I was in for wet weather. Car after car and their drivers as if in a parade, passed me by, and I became increasingly desperate for a ride. All the while, the wind picked up, and thunder sounded more loudly through the mountains all around me. Then lightning bolts lit up the sky as if it was high noon, and in an instant, it seemed like midnight. But in reality, it must have only been around 8 o'clock. I struggled to understand why so many motorists passed me by without stopping, but speculated that their own urgencies to get back home was the reason. I knew that most of them were going back to Massachusetts via I-93, right through Concord, and that I could be home in a couple of hours, but only if a single compassionate motorist stopped to give me a lift. But empathy didn't appear to be among their priorities, so I stuck to mine and kept walking and walking and walking, all the way south on Route 16 to Route 113, nearly 12 miles. I was drenched in summer shorts, t-shirt, and high-top Converse sneakers as they squished and squeaked with each increasingly arduous step that I took. Frightening, awesome bolts of lightning flashed like a billion Polaroids at once, and my heart pounded as explosive thunder echoed through the dense and breaking forest all around. Near hurricane gusts would cease long enough for many swarms of mosquitoes and seasons and yet still determined black flies to attack me at will. And I prayed for the wind to pick up again and carry them away, and most certainly it did. Why, I thought, couldn't my prayers for a ride be answered in the affirmative? By then, it must have been after midnight, and I became seriously worried that not only would I not make it home that night, I didn't know where I'd end up, but I wouldn't make it to my first day at my new job and would surely be fired. But I was really most scared for my physical well-being. I was exhausted, soaked to the bone, pricked by bugs like a voodoo doll, and was feeling famished. I hadn't eaten since lunch the previous day, and all that I drank in the way of water was rain that dripped down my face. I knew in my psyche that it was officially Monday the day that could make or break my independence. I wandered seemingly without direction down Route 113 in the unrelenting storm, and it was darker and I was lonelier than at any other time I remembered. I was in the heart of the White Mountain National Forest and felt helplessly vulnerable to all all manner of worst-case scenario attacks that I imagined might befall me. That which I feared but couldn't see in the darkness surrounding me was illuminated in my mind by stage lights, bears, bobcats, and larger mountain cats left onto my back, their stained yellow fangs biting through the cervical region of my spine. I was scaring the shit out of myself. (laughs) I was terrified by the suffocating night, chilling rainfall, and my uncertainty about what I should expect next, and my anxiety only worsened. I knew that I had to find cover. I could barely walk another step. Up ahead through the downpour, I saw a shimmering orange porch light and headed to it like a one-track-minded moth. (laughs) But no lights were on inside the summer camp and no cars were in the driveway. Too tired to walk any further, I became deeply discouraged and feeling like I might just be at the end of my rope. Then mother nature's frightening fireworks display had me scurrying like a panicked rodent down below the attached camp deck for cover. The torrential downpour was a steady irrigation through the porch boards, watering me and the shade loving weeds that I felt rubbing up against my bare arms and legs. I could hear rivulets washing through the sandy soil. I cowered in the fetal position up against the concrete foundation that was covered with sopping moss. The temperature dropped into what felt like the 50s, and I lie in wait for whatever my fate might deliver next. I hoped it wouldn't be hypothermia. My body remained tense and shivering even after the rain had stopped, while unseen parasites foraged on my exposed, defenseless, skinny body. This went on for hours. I rationalized that at least four-legged predators with incisors that could effortlessly cut me to the bone weren't my bedfellows. Still, I imagined that I just might bleed to death. Miraculously, I fell asleep, then found myself awakening in the a.m. twilight, bug bite welts covering me from head to toe. I crawled on all fours out of my swamp bed, feeling hopeful to still be alive, and reveled at the sweet smell of mountain pine after a fresh rain, and the fact that there wasn't a cloud invading the summer sky, nor a whisper of breeze remaining from the storm from hell. <laughs> I hopped like a cottontail over lawn ornaments, a garden hose, and through man-made flower beds to the black pavement a few yards away, and ironically, it felt good to be on the road again. Suddenly, twin headlights shone through the birches, beech, and pines, and as the car approached, the driver must have been scared off by my disheveled appearance. Then, without losing speed, passed me by. Similarly, my sudden optimism departed as fast as it came, and I depressingly did the only thing that I could do. Walk south on the winding mountain road in the direction of Concord, some 80 miles or so off in the distance. After about a mile walk, the sun appeared over the horizon of mountain pines that seemed like so many Christmas trees, and I gazed in wonderment at my first complete sunrise and guessed that it was around five o'clock. I peed over the side of the road, and before I could fully zipper up, a fast-approaching car nearly caught me, like a deer in its headlights. Harried, I stuck out my cold, numb, cynical thumb, but wouldn't you know it, the driver pulled to a stop ahead of me. I sprinted to the passenger door and fell into the seat like a parachutist attracted to gravity. (laughs) Where are you going? The 30-something driver asked. Conquered. I told him lowly. Me too, he said in an upbeat tone. His words were the answer to my forlorn prayer. Where have you been? I summarized my tale of woes and he was surprisingly empathetic. Go to sleep if you need to, I don't mind his permission granted, I closed my eyes, Mother Nature's vendetta apparently behind me, and as I awakened, we were passing through Tilton on I-93. The hands of Mr. Generosity's dashboard clock pointed to 6.15, and for the first time since my only other ride from Gorham, I felt as if I just might make it to work on time. The driver, whose name I didn't get, dropped me off at the I-93 exit at Bridge Street in Concord, and I walked less than a mile to Ideal Market and Bought myself a package of Janet's, greasy but intimidating, um, immensely satisfying donuts and a quart of whole milk, ravaging it like any good honey badger would. All the while, walked 10 doors more to my apartment than up three floors. Upon entrance, it seemed like home sweet home, even though I hadn't even slept there yet. I showered quickly in hot steaming water and scrubbed my head-to-toe bug bites with a well-deserved right for vengeance, dressed myself for work in new collared short-sleeved shirt and Levi's, locked my door and hit the road, begrudgingly yet again. Like crossing a finish line, exhausted but confident, I pushed the front door open into Beckett Glass, and aluminum company just five minutes away, and spotted the 1950s-era clock on the wall its hands at 7.59, proved that I was the winner. That not even Mother Nature herself could stop me. I was one minute early for work.
3: Thank you, John. Hearing that story always makes me feel like I just woke up from a nightmare. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Yeah, what a, what a first job experience. We're ready for an intermission now and when we come back, uh, we'll have three more storytellers to uh, finish off. So, you can wander out and have a glass of wine, a little bit a cup of coffee, chat a bit, and see you soon.
4: <laughs>
3: and, lucky us, we've got another storyteller coming up. April Purrington. Uh, April told this story for the theme of activism in uh, November of 2016. Um, She became involved in activism as soon as life allowed. She joined SADD, Students Against Destructive Decisions, (laughs) (laughs) was a member of her college's feminist collective, volunteered for women's crisis services, and planned to someday open her own shelter for women. She worked in mental health, assisted pregnant teenagers, and helped families apply for food stamps and Medicaid. These days, April refers to herself as an unschooling mom to three sparkly little humans in New Hampshire who spends her days in relentless pursuit of a peaceful world, a happy family, and the perfect loaf of sourdough bread. (laughs) April says that, like the women she's worked with, she has struggled long and hard to find her voice. Tonight, she will describe some of those struggles in her story, Beast. Come on up, April.
7: So in the 80s, there is this PSA on TV about sexual harassment. A woman in a boxy yellow blouse is told by her boss that she needs to up the sexy factor if she wants to keep her job. She looks him square in the eye and says, this is sexual harassment and I don't have to take it. I was probably about eight the first time I saw this. Even as a child, the whole bit seemed more like a liability waiver than a promise to keep women safe. In preschool, I was dragged in from recess by my teacher for showing my best friend James my fancy new underwear set. (laughs) It was pink and sweetly embroidered with a little butterfly resting on a flower, and it was way too pretty not to share. My teacher parked me at a little table in the dark and empty classroom ordering me to put my head down on the table and keep it there. This was the first time I remember encountering the harsh reality of what it means to have a female body and the impossible rules our society has crafted for it. By the time I saw that sexual harassment PSA, I had been living in this world long enough to have a sense of how things would go. Bodily autonomy for females was meant to be as real as unicorns and pixie dust. Being a girl meant being public property. This inevitability was solidified in the fifth grade when the boys in my class developed a clever rating system for their female peers. I remember walking down the hall with trepidation, seeing groups of boys huddling together, whispering and snickering. Outside of school, I was still playing with dolls. But within those cinder block walls, I was desperate to understand why the number six was hissed at me as I walked as I walked by, and why it seared like pain. Really though, my thoughts on the matter were irrelevant. The woman in the yellow blouse was only ever suggesting a hollow attempt at retaining ownership. She was going through the motions. There would be no salvation. Girls were supposed to fight back against this public nature of the female body, but with no real expectation that it would make any difference. My freshman year of high school, I found myself alone and friendless at a large new school. I think I was relieved when a group of five or six boys demanded that I sit down with them. They were older than me, probably fifth- or sixth-year seniors, but their invitation felt like reprieve from the torture of sitting alone. My brain conjured up an image of big brotherly figures bringing me into their circle for friendship and protection. It seemed innocent enough when they first complimented my shirt. When they continued on to describe the nature of my nipples showing underneath, I was too flustered to know how to react. For 20 minutes, I sat there while they discussed my anatomy in terms I had never before heard. The woman in the yellow blouse seemed to shrug her shoulders at me. What are you going to do? They called me back to the table to sit with them again the next day. I didn't see many other options, so I sat down. They didn't waste time bringing the conversation back to my body, this time making their way south, describing in excruciating detail what they would do to me. I can't tell you what they said because my brain has decided that these are words I cannot pair together. I can't form their sentences. You can imagine what the words may have been, and I will promise you that it was worse. And as you work to revise your version, I will keep, to keep up, I will again and again assure you that you're still not there yet. I'm 36 years old and I've birthed three children. And their st- words still have the power to shame me. For the next several months, I remained a prisoner at the lunch table, bound in shame, subjected to their daily verbal assaults. I begged my parents to let me transfer schools, to let me homeschool for the rest of the year. I could never tell them the motivation behind my frantic request, the torment of the entire situation overpowering my brain before I could even fathom putting words around it. I finished out the last two months of the school year eating alone, hidden away, safely inside a metal bathroom stall. My humiliation bounced off the walls around me, keeping me safely locked inside. I knew what rape was and how children sometimes fall prey to a sexual predator. These things were bad, with a capital B-A-D. The laws against them were big, fat, shiny promises about bodily autonomy. But that lady in the yellow blouse had handled her situation right then and there, using nothing more than some big-girl words. She was harassed and she handled it. It was no big deal. My lunchroom misery was something I should have been able to ward off with one confident sentence. The fact that it continued was my fault. The pain I suffered was on me. Poor baby, I'd had to hear words that made me feel uncomfortable. They had never laid a hand on me, not once. By all means, I had no reason to feel what I felt, that they had raped me with their words and that this was somehow deserving of deep-seated pain and shame. So I buried these memories away, and I never told a soul. I abandoned my 14-year-old self within the walls of that high school. I let her humiliation pile up next to the experiences that would come later, boys who would disregard my humanity in order to fill their own whims and desires. Like a pile of dirty laundry in the back of my closet, I chalked a lot of it up to routine teenage stuff and paid it little attention. For 22 years, it sat there undisturbed. But then, one unassuming Friday last October, my Facebook feed came to life with Donald Trump's slithery voice talking about his entitlement to women's bodies. Grab them, by the pussy. These words were more than just words. They were a trigger, unleashing the pain, shame, and violence of the words from the lunch table so many years ago. My 14-year-old self started pounding at my consciousness in a surge of fury. I asked her to keep her voice down, and she spit at me. (laughs) I raised my own voice and told her to shut up. We wrestled, her fingers wrapped coldly around my throat. I begged her to go away. She set her jaw and let out a huff. This wisp of a girl hunted and haunted me, in sleep and wakefulness, roaring and roaring and roaring. So I've always been involved in activism. In college, I volunteered at women's crisis services. I quit the cheerleading team so that I could have more time to be active in our feminist collective. I've walked through the streets shouting, hey, hey, ho, ho, sexual assault has got to go. I've stood and protested war in the Bush administration. I've marched for NAMI and sat and listened to the stories of people whose ghosts are so relentless in their own endless roaring that the idea of sanity becomes elusive and exhausting. I've worked with the homeless, the hungry, the uninsured. I've done all these things with a fiery intensity in my heart, but a frailty in my voice. I carefully packaged apologies of my passion and begged forgiveness of anyone who might find themselves burdened by my convictions. I seemed to walk through life with my own liability waiver. I'm here, and I believe, and I will fight, and I hope that's okay. Do you need me to quiet down? (laughs) If I spoke too loudly, those lunchroom words might just find their way out. As our future president's words echoed through cyberspace, my 14-year-old self suddenly seemed unconcerned about being a hindrance. She tantrumed, enraged, chopped off all of my hair when I wasn't paying attention, until suddenly I found myself talking about the words. Hearing this adult version of me talk about these lunch table memories that had ensnared me, I suddenly realized that crazy idea Maybe my long-denied feelings were valid. What happened at the lunch table was not insignificant. The PSA from the 80s may have been crafted with the best of intentions. But for me, it served to minimize sexual harassment and put the burden of resolution on the victim. And that's the crux of it. Being an activist is to question and challenge the resolutions offered by our institutions. When I told that 14-year-old to shut up, I was letting society dictate how loudly I should speak and what I should say. Now I'm standing here and talking about words that are over 20 years old. I've decided they don't get to imprison me any longer. I marched back to high school, and I swept my 14-year-old self up in my arms. I never should have left her there. We left that school and heard the echo of the doors slamming shut behind us. She and I sat alone in my car, and together we traced over the broken words from 22 years ago. We nervously tried them on and clumsily tried to peel away their power. I imagine that someday soon I'll drive her to the ocean at night. We're going to sit on the rocks and release those words into the waves and the stars. We're going to watch them crash apart into a million insignificant pieces of nothing. I'm taking my voice back.
3: Yes, April, I think you've been heard here. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Next up we've got Judith Rubenstein. Now she told her story recently in May. Uh, uh, The theme was family gatherings. Judith grew up near Long Island Sound in Connecticut, brought up her own family in Dover, New Hampshire, moved to Portsmouth, and now, somewhat stubbornly, can't imagine living anywhere else. For four decades, but who's counting, she has earned her living as a senior editorial manager, writer, and editor. Outside of work and family time, she's walking around Portsmouth, doing yoga, volunteering on the Gundalo or working on the Board of Directors at Arts in Reach and New Hampshire Theatre Project. Judith likes to be busy. In this afternoon's story, she recalls uh, family connections that sometimes eluded her and an unexpected yet unexpectedly warm (laughs) memory in her story, Good Fortune. Come on up, Judith. (laughs) Hello.
8: My mother was not a warm and cuddly person. She was intellectual, competent, and smart. She was the person I would go to if I needed help on a school project. She was the person I would go to if I needed help adjusting my bicycle seat. She wasn't the first person I would go to if I needed a hug. Plus, she was pretty serious. She wasn't humorless. But humor was not an ingrained part of her personality, and she absolutely did not get goofiness. (laughs) If my brothers and I were horsing around, or my father and I were being silly and making up stupid jokes, she would look at us with a not really amused half smile, and her signature look of skepticism, which was one raised eyebrow. I used to stand in front of the mirror and try to get my face to do that. For me, my father was the heartbeat of the family. He was warm. He was attentive. He was interested. He was concerned. He was compassionate. I know I'm making him sound ideal, but he might have been that good. He would have made a wonderful grandfather. Sadly, he died when my daughters, Hannah and Ruthie, were one and four years old. That, of course, left my mother as the solo grandparent on my side of the family. This was in contrast to my husband's parents, who exceeded every picture you have in your mind of doting grandparents. (laughs) They were incessantly attentive They spoiled the kids rotten, took them everywhere, got them everything. They never moved their attention away from the kids if they were together. They were funny and silly and playful. Plus they lived near us, so my kids saw them frequently. My mother lived four hours away in Connecticut, so they saw her much less frequently. So I had something of a chip on my shoulder during those years wishing that my father were around to kind of balance the grandparent scale and be that warm, loving, fun grandfather that I knew he would have been. And I also was wishing that my mother could shed some of that impenetrable reserve that I felt separated her from me and separated her from my kids. My mother did have a master stroke as a grandmother, and that was called Camp Savta. And Savta is the Hebrew word for grandmother, which is what all her grandchildren called her. Well, one thing we knew about my mother was that she loved summer camp. Unlike the rest of the family, she was athletic, so she loved the sports, but she also loved all the activities, the structure, the ritual, the songs. And most of her grandchildren didn't go to summer camp, so she wanted to give them some of that experience. Well, it started with my kids and some of their cousins. And my mother crafted a real week-long summer camp. She hired a counselor who slept over (laughs) and was her lieutenant. They had a schedule. They had chores. They had rules, one of which was you couldn't come down for breakfast until you'd made your bed. They had a full roster of activities. Well, my mother, oh, and she put them to bed with taps and she got them up in the morning with (laughs) reveille. My mother was lucky enough to have several friends with swimming pools. So, as part of the week's schedule of activities, the kids had swimming lessons and free swim every day. One of our good friends is a professional artist, so the kids spent time in her studio, and by the end of the week, they completed a project. They went on field trips. They went on nature walks. They even created and performed an end-of-camp show. (laughs) Well, my younger daughter Hannah was about five when Camp Sovta started her first summer, and being away from home for a week at that age was not easy. And one night, as my mother was putting her to bed, Hannah said, I miss my mommy. And as the story goes, here was my mother's opportunity, her, her chance to show the empathy and compassion we knew was inside her. So Hannah says, I miss my mommy. And my mother says, well, she's not here right now. LAUGHTER She's not here right now. It doesn't take the most sensitive person in the world to come up with something a little better than that. I know you do, honey. I'm sure she misses you too, honey. No. In fact, that made such an impression on us, my family uses that all the time. I wish we had some ice cream in the freezer. Well, that's not here right now. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Camp Sovta was a great success. And as a result, the cousins developed very close, very loving bonds. They're now all in their 20s and 30s, and they still feel this. Their relationship with my mother, though, while one of profound respect and appreciation wasn't one I would call close. Camp Softa went on for several summers and as the kids got older, they had other obligations and other interests and it fell by the wayside. But my mother really liked to be helpful and so she continued to have my kids come down from New Hampshire for about a week every summer just to give me and my husband a break. So we'd bring them down one weekend, spend the night, go back to New Hampshire on the Sunday, and we'd work the week. And then usually I would go down the following Saturday and pick them up, spend the night and then go back. So one year my girls were probably about 9 and 12. I was making this trip came down to get them after their week. And We went out to a Chinese restaurant for dinner, the four of us. One thing we definitely all had in common was our appreciation for food. So we're sitting at the table, and the waiter brings over the tea, a very large ceramic teapot with a curved handle. And he says, be very careful. The pot gets very hot, and we just made fresh tea. It's boiling hot. Make sure you don't touch the pot. Only use the handle. Okay. I'm a rule follower, so I'm pretty careful about this. I reach over, grasp the pot by the handle, lift it carefully, and the pot falls off the handle and splashes boiling tea all over the table and on me. I must have gone back like this because it got me here. Well, there was a moment of stunned silence, I can tell you that. And then... Amid all the concern, I had to get up. I went into the ladies' room. I soaked paper towels with cold water and placed them on my skin. And once the immediate intensity had subsided, I went back out to the table. Well, of course, everybody wants to know, are you okay? Do you want to leave? Should we go home? Uh, No, I want my Chinese food. (laughs) So we have our dinner. And I hear about the week's activities, which pools my girls visited, which of my mother's friends took them out to dinner, uh, what movie they went to see. Dinner comes to an end. And of course we get our check and with our check, our fortune cookies. So we pass a little tray around. We each take our fortune cookie and we're looking around to see who's gonna start. And my mother makes this very gracious after you gesture to me. Okay, fine, I'll go first. I crack open my fortune cookie, I pull the little slip of paper out, and I read something like, The man at the top of the mountain did not fall there.
4: (laughs) It's deep, that's deep.
8: (laughs) Then it's Ruthie's turn. She opens her fortune cookie, pulls out the little slip of paper, and reads something like, To be happier, eat more Chinese food. (laughs) Then it's Hanny's turn, cracks open her cookie, pulls out the slip of paper, and reads something like, An unexpected opportunity will lead to adventure. Finally, it's my mother's turn. She cracks open her fortune cookie, pulls out the slip of paper, looks up at us and says, when dining in Chinese restaurant, watch out for teapot. (laughs) (laughs) You could have knocked me over with a feather. We were helpless with laughter. We had to lean over on the table because we couldn't sit up. I had never heard my mother say anything nearly that funny, never anything remotely goofy, and I had never seen her laugh like that. It was great. Well, next day, take my kids back to New Hampshire They continued coming to see my mother for a few more summers. And after a few years, my mother started to develop dementia. So she became even more remote. And the hopes that I always had for finding that core of warmth, for finding that circle of intimacy that I had yearned for, those hopes were dashed. But over those years, I also realized that with my mother's generosity, with her helpfulness, with her swimming lessons, and with that fortune, she had given me the warmest of memories.
3: Sometimes it only takes a moment to switch things around in your land of memories. Thank you, Judith. (laughs) Next up, our last storyteller we have here is uh, Sharon Jones. A lot of you know who Sharon is. Recently, the Portsmouth Herald accurately named her a Portsmouth Gem. She grew up here in Portsmouth where she was raised in a close-knit family of 13 children. She's currently writing a book about that. Recently honored by the Black Heritage Association for her services and excellence as an entertainer and mentor, she unveiled the Ella Fitzgerald postage stamp. In her youth, Sharon moved to Los Angeles to study voice where she became an accomplished singer who toured with legendary jazz artists all across the country. Although she says that she strives to keep a good balance in her life, she's one of the busiest people I know, performing all over New England. You can catch her at Demeter's Steakhouse, the Dolphin Striker, the Press Room, when it reopens, and uh, <laughs> at Rudy's, or in Boston at the Beehive and the Beat Hotel. In fact, today, before she came here, she was over at the, that English pub. the yeah, the new one. Sharon is a singer, a vocal coach, and storyteller who loves spending time with her family and hanging out with friends. She is out and about all over town, but it wasn't always like that. Let's find out about Sharon's early years and her story, The Doll, Who Sat Beside Me. Come on
9: up, Sharon. It's raining out. (laughs) Okay, that's good. 525 Maplewood Avenue, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The house I grew up in. Very large mansion-looking house. I consider myself very fortunate to have played and slept and interacted with other siblings there. As Patty just told you, I was raised in a family of 13. I'm number 12. There were 10 girls and three boys. The last two were my sister Karen and myself. We were The only two that were born not only in Portsmouth, but in a hospital. Karen and I played every day in that big house together. It was like a fairy tale living there. My father went to work every day, like most fathers did back then. My mom stayed home, and Karen and I just played all day. It was wonderful. During some part in the afternoon, sometime in the afternoon, my mother would always call us, Sharon, Kitty, come on in and have lunch. Well, Karen named herself Kitty at a very young age. No one ever figured that out, but she didn't answer to Karen, so we all went along with the name Kitty.
4: <laughs>
9: she was a very quiet soul and and still is, and we played very well together, but I did all of the talking. And she just most of the time ignored me. Well, this particular day when my mother called us in, <coughs> excuse me, for lunch, Something didn't feel right. I knew something was up. And I speak of my mother and father whenever I tell these stories, because those of you who've seen me tell these stories before, you know how important they were in my life and the other siblings' lives, our mentors and our heroes, my mom being very quiet and my father very verbal. And so when she called me in that day, along with my sister Kitty, for lunch, after lunch we helped clear away the dishes that were on the table, and my mom said, before you go back out, I have something I want to tell you. She had great diction. Now that I think of it, I kind of thought she might have been related to Barack Obama. <laughs> Sharon in a couple of weeks you'll be going to school and I said school well, what about her is she going <laughs> Sharon she's two years younger than you she won't be going to school at the, t- at the same time that you'll go And in a couple of years, then Kitty will go to school. Well, I didn't sit well and we went back out to play and I was very solemn for the rest of the day and as a matter of fact, the rest of the couple of weeks before school started. Then the day rolled around and breakfast was on the table in the morning and the clothes were laid out. I don't know how many of you remember the pleated skirt with the blouse and those ugly socks with the little frills on the top. (laughs) Patent leather shoes or loafers or something. And it was all laid out and I got dressed and went down to the dinner table. The breakfast table, I'm sorry. And hardly ate any breakfast that morning because I knew this was the day. I felt like it was my last supper and I was going to the (laughs) gas chamber. So my mother reassured me that everything was going to be all right. And she was very affectionate and gave me a hug and, come on, we'll walk you to school. So she and my sister Kitty and Rex the dog all went to school. The New Franklin School that wasn't very far from where we lived, so we just walked over there. And they dropped me off. And even today, when I go in the building, I always look for the exit (laughs) in case I have to get out. As soon as they left and the teacher turned around to write the lesson on the blackboard, I went home. And my mother was in front of the sink doing up the rest of the dishes, and when she turned around, (laughs) it was like, what are you doing here? And I said, I can't go to that school because I don't like it there. None of those those kids look like me, and and no one wants to play with me, and I want to be here. With Kitty, because that's who I played with all these years, she's been my friend and my sister, and I'm not going back to school. So she didn't make me go back to school that day. She waited for my father come home. And my father called a meeting with the rest of the family because he liked meetings. <laughs> And he had enough kids to have a great meeting.
4: <laughs>
9: so they all gathered in the dining room, and my mother would always put a pot of tea on and a pot of coffee and some cookies, and we had to sit there while my father went through various reasons why we were there and that we should be, sit quietly and speak one at a time until we all spoke as to what our opinion was on this particular matter, which that day was me. (laughs) They all agreed unanimously that we needed to have a meeting with the school principal. And so they contacted Mrs. Jeffert, Mrs. Alice Jeffert. She was the principal at the New Franklin School. And she asked us to come in and speak with her. So the next time we went, there was Karen, Kitty, my mother, Rex, me, and my father. Now we all went to the New Franklin School. And they came up with some different ideas that might make me more comfortable being there and then we went back to the house that night we had this wonderful dinner and more meetings (laughs) and then my father said Sharon do you realize that going to school isn't an option for you it's a necessity this is what we do at a certain age we leave the house and we go to school and you have to go back to school. And he's looking, all right?
4: Because
9: <laughs> he always did that, he, he was real tall and so when he spoke to us, he <laughs> <laughs>
4: And
9: he looked right in our eyes and I'd look back and I had these sad eyes, you know, so. The following week, they all took me back to school. We went again, and I didn't really want Rex in the picture at that point, because my brother earlier in the summer came down with the whooping cough, and Rex sounded like he was getting it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was afraid of Rex, because when my brother coughed, it really sounded like Rex barking, (laughs) and vice versa. But Rex came along. He was part of the family there. And he we went into the Newer Franklin School and Miss Jeffords met us there. And she said to my mother and father and my sister, would you come into the room here? I would like Sharon to walk into the classroom alone. The rest of the children have not arrived yet, and I have something for her. So I walked into the classroom, and there on the chair in front of my desk, and at that time, the desk and the chair were adjoined, you know. There was a box, and I went in, and I, I said, this is for me, and I opened up the box, and there was a doll in the box, and she had a wooden face and wooden arms and legs and a cloth also, and I picked her up, and as soon as I picked her up, her eyes flapped open, You know, they opened right up, and it was like they were looking at me. So I took the doll, and I went back into the office, and I said, May I have this? And Mrs. Jefferson said, I bought that for you. And she said to my parents, like, and they left, along with my sister and the dog. And I went in, and I took the doll out of the box, and I sat her in that chair next to me. And I named her Tootie. (laughs) That's the strangest name, you know, I I don't know why I did that. But Tootie was cool, because Tootie was kind of like my sister, my friend. Tootie didn't talk, and neither did Kitty. (laughs) Perfect. So Tootie went to school with me every day, and when I left, she went home with me and then back again. And the children in the class started relating to Tootie and me. And before I knew it, I had this circle of friends that became my best friends. And during Valentine's Day, we exchanged Valentine's cards with a little heart that said, I love you and I love you too. And before I knew it, my personality started getting bigger and bigger. As a result of a principal who was once a teacher, who had the innate sense and the benevolence to reach out and recognize how uncomfortable and how fearful I was, because of she who stepped beyond her responsibility as a teacher and became a mentor. I was able to finish that year with all of the children who became my circle of friends. I sometimes reflect even today back at Mrs. Alice Jeffords and how far ahead of her time she was. I know there are teachers even today that do that, but it shaped my head and my heart because her heart was so big. Now people sometimes say, well, Sharon, where is Triddy now? And I simply say, I would imagine that she's sitting at a desk with some six-year-old who was afraid to go to school. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. (laughs)
2: Thank you so much to all of tonight's amazing, or today's, I should say, amazing storytellers. I wanna clap. (laughs) Thanks also to all of you, our audience, which makes this way more fun to do, believe me, right? Round of applause for yourselves. We um, are always so honored to be here at the West End Studio Theater and um, the Artists Collaborative Theater of New England. And thank you so much to, to Stephanie Voss Nugent for bringing us here yet again. Stephanie. <laughs> A few other thanks. Our MC, Pat Spaulding, our program assistant, David Frayner. Promotional assistant photographer, not here today, but usually Steve Koval, and of course producer John Levering. So, yes. Go <laughs> so we do know that there's some information in your programs. We just want to m- remind you and invite you to watch us, True Tales Live, on Portsmouth Public Media TV. That's channel 98 ca- cable access. We are on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. It also streams online. And of course, we, well, I shouldn't say of course. And also, um, we're always available as video on demand on YouTube. You just uh, search for PPM TV True Tales Live, and there we'll be. We also invite you to come to our live audience, to be part of our live audience at those monthly events at PPM-TV, that's 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth. They're on the last Tuesday of most months. We take a summer break in December. I think this year is Christmas. We're not going to do that. But um, usually the last Tuesday of each month from 6 to 8 PM, and that's free and open to all. If you have a story to tell, which we believe you do, um we would love to hear from you True Tales live one at gmail.com that should be in your program. We also have our storytelling workshops the first Tuesday of each month, 7:30 to nine also at PPM TV Studios. They're free and open to everyone. The next one is this coming Tuesday, September 5th. You can also write to us if you want more info on that. And we also have a Facebook page, True Tales Live on Facebook, which has this information. It will also, now contains our announcement of our 2018 dates and themes. So check that out, too. Um, And as you know, we're going to be back here in October. What's the date? Anyone? The 1st, October 1st, here, with a whole different lineup of storytellers, six totally new folks with new stories. So we would love to see you there, too. (sighs) And let's have a last round of thanking our storytellers and crew. John,
4: come on up.